All right. So if you would join me in a word of prayer, we're going to lift this uh, study up to the Lord that, uh, <clears throat> that he would be with us, as he says, if we're gathered together in his name. God, we just uh, praise you and exalt you. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, God, I thank you for uh, the teaching we got last week from Travis with the overview of the books of the Bible and the Bible, um, how it was, uh, the canon was put together, Lord, and just, um, God, just how you put together the books for us to learn from, and God, we just thank you for that. Uh, God, we just pray for uh, wisdom, Lord, we pray for uh, preciseness, God, we pray that uh, we would be looking at your scripture and having it teach us what you want us to know, God, so that it would change our lives, Lord. Uh, the scripture uh, says it's wise unto salvation. And God, we just praise you for that. Uh, we praise you for your son, our redeemer, God, that's shown throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Lord, we praise you for that. And we see the fulfillment in the New Testament, God, and we praise you for that. God, as once again, I say, we just be with us tonight as we uh, turn our attention to your word and start digging in a little bit. Uh, in a fast-paced way, God. Uh, help us to uh, slow down enough to catch what we uh, need to learn. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start off because um, it was funny. I thought it was awesome when Doug won the $5 bet last week. I thought it was awesome. But what I'd like you to do is go to your contents. We thought about buying food for everybody, but... Did you? But five boxes didn't go far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might start a Baptist potluck. No, um, so if you don't mind, just uh, go with me here. Let's go to our table of contents in the front of your Bibles. I'd like us all to say the books of the Bible together. I, I just think it's a great time for us to learn that order. Travis kind of laid out what each of those were. Uh, you know that we had the teachings, those are the first five, Torah, another word for that, right? Uh, we had uh, the poems, uh, poetry, we had, uh, you know, history. He laid all this out, you have it in your notes. But what I want to do is just pound through this and let's do uh, the Old Testament, New Testament, and say it together. So, ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And if you would, mine flips over. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. All right. I just thought it would be helpful to get that in our minds. So, if you would bear with me, I have a scripture reading I want to start with first, and then we'll get into the lesson. Kind of like a Sunday morning. We do our scripture reading, then we have our, uh, the preaching, right? I love that. Um, 
If you would turn with me, if you wish, you can go to John chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. You're going, Mark, aren't you teaching out of the Torah in Genesis? Yeah, I am. Okay, <clears throat> this is our scripture reading. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jugs, jugs, excuse me, or jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and the, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is, or this, the first sign uh, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, so tonight's lesson is in Genesis. We're going to go back, okay, folks? So turn back to Genesis 1. <clears throat> I was sharing with Gary this morning. I said, I need prayer. I said, I feel like I'm driving a bulldozer through a minefield at 75 miles an hour. And I'm not supposed to hit any landmines. Not going to happen. We're going to hit landmines, but we're going to move from uh, chapter 1 to 11 pretty quickly because, you know, this is only going to be about an hour and maybe 30 minutes, right? Maybe a little less. I guess it's going to be a little less now. So <clears throat> let's get started. You have your outline papers in front of you. If you do not have one, they are in the back. We as elders are asking, take notes, you know, write down questions, come talk to us, come speak to us about this. Uh, there's going to be a little bit of time for interaction tonight, at least I hope there will be, but uh, we will be moving at a fast pace. So let's get ready. We'll just do the simple stuff. Title. The title in Hebrew is literally the word Rashith, okay, Rashith, and it just means in the beginning. Okay, that would be its Hebrew title if this, for this scroll as one of them in the Torah, the first five books. Now, we know it by its Greek name, and that is what? Genesis. Genesis. Now, that word in Greek means origins or beginnings. Okay? And if you look at Genesis, that's really not a bad title, right, for Genesis, because there are so many beginnings in this book, and we're going to look at those tonight. So, um, basically, I want you to keep that in your mind that, you know, you have this title in the beginning or Genesis in the, that was taken from the Septuagint, okay? So, the Greek translation of the Torah. Now, Torah means teachings, all right? First five books. This is one of those teachings. The author, most people believe it is Moses, okay? And it, it's substantiated, all right? Uh, it's stated in Exodus 17, 14. This is when God says, write these things down, right? Exodus 17, 14, Exodus 24, 4, Exodus 34, 27, 
that is where you see Moses is writing down the Torah to share with the people, okay? Now, it's confirmed by scripture. So if we look at Joshua 8.31, you will see, it says these are the books of Moses, all right? If you look at, let's go ahead and grab one. Uh, let's look at uh, 1 Kings 2.3 and go there together. And like I said, I'm gonna try to move this along fairly quickly. So if you get that, let's see here. Come on, 1 Kings. All right. 1 Kings 2.3 very simply states, um, And keep the charge of the Lord God, walking in all the ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. So you can see they're, they're signifying this back, these writings, the law, the Torah, back to Moses. So he is most likely, and I truly believe, he's, your, he's the author of, of the Torah, okay, or of Genesis. So, the date, when did Moses pin these down? Now, you need to remember that the Torah was not written until after they left Egypt, and they were actually in the plains of Moab, and, and Moses began writing these down. So, sometime between 1445 B.C. and 1405 B.C., the uh, book of Genesis, or the Torah, was written. What's really cool is reading some of the history books that are, are, are out now with the archaeological evidence of Egypt, with Egyptolo Egyptology that's going on. It's confirming all of these things that are written in the scripture. Uh, one of the fascinating things I read, what I thought was cool, I don't have it cited here, was that um, when Joseph came into the land, Egypt was being ruled by a, a Semitic group who probably language was very close to Joseph. And you can see Joseph got along with the Pharaoh and he went to the top, right? We won't go through all that with Joseph. But archaeology is even confirming that it's interesting how Joseph would have aligned fairly well with the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time. But Moses, the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time, was from a different culture, different race. And not that this is a racial thing. This is just a different culture. And, and did not have monotheistic beliefs at all, pagan beliefs, multi-theistic beliefs, right? Polytheism, and went contrary to Moses. It's really cool how archeology span is actually showing that, yeah, that scripture is real, okay? Um, purpose, the purpose is that God of creation chose to bless sinful mankind through Abraham and his seed who will inherit the land. Now, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. What's the purpose of 1 through 11? The purpose of 1 through 11 is setting up the story of Abraham, the generations of Abraham, the chosen man, right? With the chosen lineage and the sons of promise. So really, verses chapters 1 through 11 is just setting up the fact that Abraham is the chosen man of God. Okay? So theme. What's the theme that's in Genesis? Now part of this, uh, Michael Edwards, thank you Michael, he'll be teaching next week, right? Because he's going to take on 12 through 50. We're focusing on just 1 through 11 tonight. But the theme is beginnings, covenants, and generations. So Genesis describes the origin of the human race, 
the introduction of sin into the world, the confusion of languages, also known as the dispersion of nations, right? And the divide or choice of Israel based on promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Genesis in a nutshell. Okay. No, you're cool. Uh, so the theme is beginnings, covenants, and generations. Genesis describes the origin of the human race, the introduction of sin into the world, the confusion of languages, and we know that as the dispersion of nations, right? Um, and the divine choice of Israel based on promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Michael will cover next week. In your outline, you have a little place there. Uh, outline, uh, 1 through 11 is primeval history. Why would I not use the word prehistoric history? Well, we have it right here. This, there's this history. Yeah, because prehistoric means what? Before, before it was recorded. Prehistory, right? <clears throat> there is nothing before history. Okay? History is all the way back. So we don't use the term prehistoric. We use the word primeval, which prime means first or beginning or one. Okay? It means the first age, when it began. Primeval. So um, I want you to catch that. I don't want you to call it prehistoric because nothing precedes God's word. Um, one through two. Uh, chapters one and two, creation. That's what those two chapters are about. Three through five, the fall and the effects of the fall. Uh, six through nine, that's about flood or judgment, right? And there are multiple judgments in Genesis 1 through 11, but flood's a big one. And then 10 and 11 is the dispersion of nations, okay? It's when the nations are created. All right. Major themes that we learn in the scripture, and they're really awesome. Uh, we learn about the doctrine of man. What does it mean to learn? Yes, Travis. Could you please repeat the, the Yes, outline. Sorry. So if you were the overarching outline is primeval history, chapters 1 through 11. Okay, that's really what Genesis 1 through 11 is about, beginning. And then chapters 1 and 2 is creation. So creation should be number 2? Uh, if you're, if you're looking down, yeah. It, it's kind of odd the way this is written, sorry. Because um, really we could just say uh, creation is one, okay. fall is two, three is the flood, four is nations. But there's an overarching umbrella over all of those, which is basically we're talking about primeval history. Okay? okay so, so. so the fall, that, that's... The fall is chapters three through five. The flood is chapter 6 through 9, and the nations is 10 through 11. So if somebody said, hey, can you tell me about the flood? How did that come into effect? Why did God judge the, fall, the, the people with a flood? Where would you go? What chapter? Six. Chapter 6. You can find it easily in your Bible when you have these kind of outlines. All right. It makes it easier just to find things. All right, major themes, doctrine of man. So... Uh, Another word for that would be anthropology, right? The study of man. So the doctrine of man, we really learn some incredible things in the first 11 chapters, very quickly, okay? Um, we learn uh, about human dignity. Human dignity is taught in chapters 1 and 2. 
Why do we learn about human dignity? dignity? Because we learn in Genesis 1.26 that man was created in what? God's image. You know, we have folks who, um, you know, we were out to dinner with uh, the Allens one evening, and we had a guy approach us about dignity and death. And please sign this uh, uh, petition that people can die with dignity. And really, folks, that's not taking into account people are created in the image of God. Because really, uh, my thoughts went to the fact that, number one, this guy is not a believer, does not believe there's a God, does not believe we're created in the image of God. But also the fact that dignity and death is really an out for the person who's the caretaker. And sometimes guilt gets put on the person who's suffering and they'll take their life. And really, folks, that's contrary to Genesis 1 and 2 and the fact that we're created in God's image. And the next step in that is, well, do you get rid of the elderly? Do you get rid of the handicap? Folks that are special needs? Is that where this heads? Because it is. Okay? We teach against that. All right, so we learn about human dignity and the fact that man and woman were created in the likeness of God. And I'll say man and woman. Man was created in God's image. Man was made from, or woman was made from man, correct? But male and female, he created them. All right, John 4, 24. What does it mean to be created in God's image? Because this can be askew sometime in the fact that John 24 says God is spirit, but man is flesh, right? So how are we created in God's image? Question to you. Yes, Leah. I'm thinking that there are things about our spirits that reflect his spirit. So ways that we think and reason and um, our sense of morality. Absolutely. Um, things like that are things that animals can't They can't do. do they can't do. And it doesn't mean that our physical appearance is not some type of reflection for the, of the creator God. When, when folks look at us, that, right, when the angels look at us, I'm sure they go, wow, God was amazing. So in that fact, we do in our image. But, but truly, it is the fact that, it, I mean, Scripture answers it. Right after that, in verse 28, God says, you're over all the animals. Every one of them. Fish, creepy things, all of it. Wow, hope I answered that right. (laughs) You know, I like how how, uh, uh, one of the folks, I think it was Ken Ham, Ken Ham wrote, I believe in his book, he said, it's it's not unlike, and please don't take me wrong in this, someone who creates an idol and fashions an an idol after their own image and, and people worship it. They can see that person who fashioned that idol, but it's really not God. It is not God, right? Okay. So, but we put on the likeness of God. If you look at Ephesians 4.24, I like this in a, in, in a contrast or a, a thought about what does it mean to be created in God's image. Now, we don't have this unless we have Christ, but it says put on the new self in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. That's Mark paraphrase, okay? You can look it up if you'd like, Ephesians 4.24. You know, God wanted us to be holy. He wants us to be righteous, and we are that in Christ, and that is an image of God, okay? We're called to be holy. All right. 
What I think is interesting is uh, sometimes people think, well, we're like God. We're like God. Mm, no, we're not. According to Philippians 2, 7, it says Jesus emptied himself, became a slave in the likeness of men. Okay? That means he was not like us. Okay? So we are not God. All right. The other thing we learn about man in Genesis, we're made from dirt. Okay? We're just dirt. I love the fact Ken Ham uh, shares in his videos in his book, Answers in Genesis, 59 Questions. You know, we're all shades of dirt. Why we have all these racial tensions and stuff when we're all just dirt colored anyway, you know, from Adam, who had that dirt in him. I, I just don't get it. So um, the fact is, we learn that in Genesis. This is anthropology. This is what do we learn about doctrines of man, right? We also learn in Genesis 2.15, you know what? Work was created before the fall. It's okay for man to work. It's not part of sin. Now, toil in the earth because of the curse that was put on the earth, that's what came from it. But it isn't work itself. Work is not a curse because God placed man in the garden to work the garden. That's previous to the curse. So men, like it or not, yes, you get up and you work. That's not part of the curse, but the bad stuff that comes along with work, right? The weeds and the stuff we have to deal with, okay? And they may not be real weeds, but they may be a boss that is difficult. That's part of that sin that we inherit, right? It's part of sin entering the world. We learned that in Genesis. Uh, we also learned that that God taught man to be scientific. He brought all the animals to it. And that he named them one by one. Categorized them, named them. So it's pretty cool. We learned that in Genesis. And uh, we learn about woman and the fact that she was made from man's rib. You know, not the head to rule over, not the feet to be walked on, but in the side, right? It's a beautiful uh, picture of, of how God created woman. Then we learn about man's depravity, okay? In, in Genesis, we learn about the anthropology of man, subtitle, human depravity. We learn about, in chapter 3, disobedience. We learn about how man fell, what brought him to fall. Chapter 4, soon after that fall, we learn that man's a murderer. We learn that murder's there. You see Cain killing his own brother. Chapter 6, corruption. And then 6.13 says, violent. We learn that man is violent. So, um, makes sense that we have the political environment we have today, does not, right? We're corrupted. Uh, chapter 11. Uh, this was interesting to me. I thought we learned in chapter 11 about man's pride, his arrogance. We see the fact that man is about that. It's, it's a temptation. It's a sin that we're drawn to. We see that with the people who built the great, big, huge tower to heaven, right? They want to be as great as God, okay? Pride. Also, in Genesis 1 through 11, what do we learn about God? What's the theology? What is the doctrine of God that we learn? We learn that God has divine power. You look at his creative power in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he has unbelievable power to speak the universe into existence. Um, we see, um, uh, sorry, we see that he 
he's omniscient, okay, in Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11, how do we see that? Because he goes to Noah and says, build a boat. A flood is coming. He's omniscient. He knows the future. Um, not only that, he told Noah how to build a boat with dimensions that naval vessels use today. Amazing. Um, he has power to destroy the entire earth. And he used that power. All right, we see divine judgment. We learn about God's divine judgment. In chapter 3, we see divine judgment that he had on the serpent for tempting and deceiving Eve to take the fruit in the center of the garden, knowledge of good and evil. We see divine judgment on Eve when he passes down saying, your childbearing is going to increase in pain. We see it on Adam in the fact that he says, Adam, cursed will be the ground. And from the sweat of your brow, you will get the goods from the ground. We see divine judgment on Cain, but we also see mercy on Cain. That's an amazing story. Here we have a, our first murderer, and it's not an eye for an eye with God in this story. It's almost a testimony of mercy. He judged him harshly because he had to leave. He had to flee. Everybody wanted to kill him. But God made it so people could not. That was the mercy. Well, we see that divine judgment. We see in chapters 6 through 8, the judgment of all mankind, spare 8, right? He decided that he'd wipe them all out. Chapter 11, when man's pride got too large, and God basically said, we've got to stop this, and he dispersed the, the uh, nations in the mixing of languages. I'm going to throw this in, Michael, I'm stealing one from you. Uh, out in chapter 37, we see divine sovereignty. You know, and we see this with chapter 37 through 50, and especially with Joseph and his comments to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So even things that were bad, that were flooding in on uh, Joseph, that appeared to be bad, God used them for his ultimate good, to save the nation of Israel. And we see that in the flood. It was horrible. You, you think of how many folks must have died in that flood. Uh, I love it. One of the folks who used to attend here said, um, there's pictures in the nursery of the Noah's Ark and, you know, the nursery. And in her mind, when she sees the Noah's Ark, she sees everybody clinging to the boat, getting swiped away, right? Because thousands and millions, how many people would have died in that? Millions probably died in that flood. Uh, divine grace. God chooses the lowly. You know, God doesn't choose the arrogant and proud. He chooses the lowly. You look at the story of Cain and Abel. It's interesting. He chose the second son's offering, not the first son's. So God will choose the lowly. And, and then you look at the line of promise. The line of promise that God chose was Seth. He's the third son, right? And you see this theme throughout the scripture, how uh, God chooses the one you probably don't think he would choose and uses them. Okay, biblical development. <clears throat> Why do we have verses 1 through 11? And I think we already kind of said this in the theme. It's really to build a case for a covenant between God and man. 
Because really, without a promise from God, we have no hope. We are hopeless without God's interaction and promise. Okay? So really, verses 1 through 11 really sets up the story for that promise that's coming. Verses or chapters? Chapters. Sorry. Thank you, Larry. Chapters. Chapters 1 through 11 build that case. Okay. Keys to Genesis 1 through 11. All right. Keys. Chapter 1. <clears throat> Key chapter. Because it's about creation in a broad perspective. It's universal. It's speaking into existence from nothing, something. Chapter 2, that's a key chapter because it focuses on the creation of man, mankind. Not man, mankind, right? Chapter 3 talks about the temptation, the fall, the curses, prophecy about Jesus Christ, right? And the fact that he tells the woman, your seed will be at enmity between the serpent's seed. The serpent will bruise your heel or his heel, the seed's heel, and the seed will crush or bruise the serpent's head. So you see that as prophecy of Christ. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain's line. And then the beginning of civilization is in chapter 4. 6 through 8, the flood the deliverance in the ark, which really is a foreshadow or type. It's a foreshadow of Christ, right? It's that saving of a few from destruction. Nine, the Noahic covenant, okay? And Canaan's curse, the Noahic covenant. What is the Noahic covenant? The rainbow. The rainbow. That, and Gary, what? Yeah, and, and folks have not caught the fact that a rainbow is to resemble the bow on a bow and arrow, right? And he set his bow in the sky. Well, which way is the bow pointed? It's upward. It's not downward to destroy the earth. It's, it's, it's just a beautiful picture. When you look at that rainbow, think of a bow and arrow. And the fact that God gave that promise to Noah saying, see my bow I've set in the sky. I know I will not destroy the earth with flood again. You know, it's a beautiful story, and it's a beautiful picture. All right. Uh, and then chapter 11. It's uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel. And then the dispersion of nations. The creation of all languages. The mixing up of men, right? It's really interesting because uh, anthropologists have tried to figure out where the root of language is. Where does it start? Where does it go? And there's lots of different branches, but they all do come together. Believe it or not, there is this similarity in the languages, and you see these different branches, and they cannot figure out what the original language is. Yeah, Larry. I can't point, pinpoint the scriptures, but I was reading through them, and I have to answer a or ask a question because it might throw a monkey wrench into that. That's okay. <laughs> There's several places in our earlier scriptures where it says the people and their languages went into various places, su suggesting to me that there were already different languages. Yes, that was one of the things I did read. And the, and the thought on one commentator was that the fact that um, after the flood, it does say, and we can go there. Let's go there together. It does appear, Larry, that 
uh, that could be a possibility. And the fact that it does say, ah, uh, in, in 1032, isn't it? It's post flood. Yeah, 10-4. 10-4 yeah, talks yeah. about it, but then 11-1 says they all use the same words. So it kind of right. foreshadows yeah. that. Right. And I'm trying to see where it says. I read this. Hang on one second. Here it is, in, in 10-32. Yeah, this is where I thought it was. And this is the possibility uh, that the commentator said this is a possible uh, possibility that the languages could have changed for these other folks, okay? Because in 1032 it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So there's a possibility there are those who spread, a few that spread out, you know, following God's command to spread out. And then we had those that stayed in the Mesopotamian area and had one language. So there is that possibility. But if you look at it, it's basically, uh, it does say that, that God confused their language. And That's this is in, in That's in Babel. That is in Babel. Babel. And it says, uh, therefore, it's, its name was called Babel because their Lord confused their language all over the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Right. So we see the dispersion of nations at that time. Yeah. So it, it could be that. It was just, just a question that arose in my mind when I read those. Right. There were several scriptures that said, and the people and their very and their languages. They actually said their languages. Oh, now, is is the would that reference be referencing back to before, after the dispersion no, or before? Before. Well, John MacArthur's study before. Bible says after the, describes the situation after the Tower of Babel account. Okay. And John well, MacArthur's study Bible. Right. That's, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I'm aware of that. But Larry's saying in other I places he's seen prior, that. Gotcha. I have read scriptures prior mm -hmm. in the reading uh, assignment in the, in, the, in the passages that preceded the Tower of Babel. And it said the Lord dispersed these, or these people went from somewhere into their own country and with their own languages. Okay. Let's take a look at it afterwards, Larry, because okay. right at yeah. the moment, no, I, I don't know. It's no that's big a, deal for me. I just... Well, it's an interesting... I always think those little details, they, they really do shed some things on the scripture, and it's kind of neat. I, okay. But I don't have the answer, but okay. I'll find it. We'll, we'll look for that. Okay? Okay. Um, but I appreciate that. That's the kind of stuff we need. All right. So... Um, Key chapters, uh, we covered that. Key passages, okay? Key passages, if you're going to study Genesis 1 through 11, key passage would be chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And that's about the sixth day of creation, okay? The creation of man. Uh, verse 31, creation is declared very good. You know, I'm going to pause at this for a minute and share an uh, uh uh, an analogy that Ken Ham gave, there's those who are not believers in the creation and they believe that, you know, that they want to mix uh, evolution and creation together, right, and have theistic evolution or God worked through evolution. Well, it doesn't make sense with what God says about day one. It was morning, it was evening, and it was good. 
It, and then day two, it was morning, it was evening, and it was good. And we see that up to um, basically the sixth day, and God says what? It was morning, and it was mm. evening, and he adds something. It was very, very good. It's and evening and morning. Always. Evening and morning, sorry. Yeah. Am I word dyslexic then? No, I'm just <laughs> Memorization dyslexic. Um, and Ken Ham, I love what he said. He said it would be like a potter making a vase. And he would take the best clay he could make, get. You know, it's, it's devoid of, of imperfections. And he grabs that clump of clay out and sets it on his potter wheel and goes, that's a good clump of clay. That's a good clump of clay. That's a good place to start. And then he begins molding that clay. And he molds it into a vase and looks at it and goes, that's a good looking vase. That's going to look nice. And then he says, well, I've got I've to glaze it and I've got to fire it. So he glazes it and he paints it all up. And he says, ooh, I like that detail. That's a good looking vase. And then he puts it in the uh, uh, oven and he fires it. And then it's shiny. And those, those things that he painted come to life. And he looks at it and goes, That's a, that is a good looking vase. And then the last part is he takes the vase and he fills it with water and he places the flowers in it. And he says, now that's a very good vase. And that's much like what God did with this world. He took that clump of clay, I say, right? We know that it was water. And he, and he took that and made it in and filled it with the beauty we see. It's very good. Okay? So um, we go on. 2.24, chapter 2, verse 24. That's a great verse. It's about a man and woman becoming one. In, in my mind, that's a, force, that's a foreshadow or a good teaching, okay? I'm going to go out on a limb here, of the Trinity. It, it's, it's an image. It's not complete, but it's an image of the Trinity. We have those who say, well, how can God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be one? My challenge to them is, you know what? In Genesis chapter 2, God says that a woman and man come together and they're one. Why can he not come together with Christ and the Holy Spirit and be one? Because really, guys, the marriage is what's one. And you cannot have a marriage, according to the scripture, without a male and female and God. Because if you don't have God involved, there's no marriage. Okay? So to me, that is a triune relationship for the husband and wife. Now, it's not a perfect analogy to the Trinity, and I'm not going to go down that trail, but I love this verse, 224, because it, it, gives, it gives us guys knowledge to say, you know what, when we become married and we're one with our wife, we work together as one. We don't work separately. We walk together. Now, and we know that marriages are made of a male and female, man and woman, and we're not perfect, and sin is in our world, and I'll make decisions that Lisa would not agree with, that Lisa would go one way and I would go another, and that is not the Trinity. The Trinity walks in perfect harmony because all three persons are perfect. They would decide exactly the same. So I think it's a great analogy. It's not perfect, but I do think it's a great one. And we learn that in that verse. 315, 
uh, chapter 3, 15, is prophecy. We talked about this earlier. A promised seed. That is a key passage because we see Christ from the very beginning all the way through. 6, 1 through 4. <laughs> Love it, right? That it's in here as a key passage. Sons of God. How do you interpret that? How do you look at that? What do you learn from that? We're going to study that a little bit. Hopefully, if I give us enough time, if I can buzz through this. And please accept my apology. I like a little more interaction, but because we're moving at 75 miles an hour, we're bringing that down just a little bit, okay? Key dates. <coughs> Authorship. It's important to know uh, when it was written and who it was written by. Why is that? Anybody? Why is it important to know who a book of the Bible is written and when it was written and who it was written to? Why is that important? Christy. What's that? Context. Yes, context. You need to know how is this being presented? What did the people, what were they hearing when those words were spoken from God's word, right? So you need to know authorship. Genesis was written by Moses, okay? Um, following the Exodus, he wrote it after they left Egypt, okay? You need to know that. You need to keep these things in your mind, okay? So when the people are hearing certain words, certain things said to them, already certain events had already happened to them. That's important. Um, creation. Now, uh, genealogists and folks who have looked at the scripture, uh, Creation happened either 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago if you open the door or open a crack on whether the Hebrews kept good genealogy. I'm one who believes they kept good genealogy. I forgot my Bible timeline poster. I was going to bring that tonight. Forgive me. Um, but it's important to kind of look back and say, okay, we need to look at the genealogies. Who begat who? Who begat who? And work that backwards to when creation happened. Um, the flood. Key date on the flood, same thing. We don't have the exact date on the flood, but roughly 4,000 years ago, okay? So um, I won't go into detail on that. So key people. Who are the key people? Well, Adam and Eve. They're the first humans. We learn a lot about ourselves by studying Adam and Eve and their relationship. Cain, Adam's first son, the first murderer, right? The first wanderer. We learn a lot about ourselves by studying Cain. Uh, Enoch, the father of Methuselah. That's amazing. He walked with God. He never died. He was taken away. He was with God and he was with God. Amazing. Noah, he walked with God. He built an ark. He was the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and cursed Canaan, okay? So Canaan was Noah's grandson. I love the fact that Noah, it says he was a preacher. He also built an ark. He's a carpenter. He's a carpenter preacher. Hmm, I think I might have heard that one before. Uh, it's just interesting how Noah had those skills, just like our Savior. Uh, Nimrod. Interesting to learn about Nimrod. He was a hunter, a great king, founder of cities, son of Cush. 
What's interesting is when Michael was uh, doing our Bible study on Genesis this last year in men's ministry, we learned that it's a possibility. Nimrod, that hunter, that might have not been about deer. That might have been men. He hunted men because he took over cities. So this guy was bad, okay? He was tough and <clears throat> not nice. All right, literary, literary structure. How is the Bible put together as a book, okay? So this is where it gets really cool. I, I love this part. Um, we know that in a literary structure, uh, we talk about the primeval history. That goes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through 11, verse 32. It forms the introduction uh, to the patriarchs, and it demonstrates a need for the uh, synatic or the covenant made in Sinai, the Sinaitic covenant, and the Noahic flood. So if you're looking at it from a literary structure, the first part would be introduction. And that would be Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. That's just the introduction. And it's really neat how it gets after this. Um, if you go to Genesis 2, 4, we'll pick, you know what? I don't want to go there. I'm going to go there last. Let's, let's go to 5, verse 1, okay? verse 1. It says, this is the book of generations of Adam. And the word that's used there, and I hope I don't murder it, is teledot or toledot. Okay? And it's a Hebrew word that stands for generations. And it's used 30 time, 39 times in the scripture. Now, in our verses or chapters, excuse me, 1 through 11, it's used 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 times. Okay? And it's as if God is saying, here's chapter, chapter one is the introduction to my book, okay? In his, and, and, and we, we need to realize, right? Chapters were created by men who were canonizing the Bible to try to put it in a structure that made sense, and it really does, okay? They did a great job. But you can see where God had his introduction. You can see he started the next part was uh, Toledot, and that's in 2-4. And it's interesting. I read earlier in 5-1, these are the generations of Adam, right? Um, let me read that again. This is the book of generations of Adam when God created man. And then it starts going into all of Adam's generations. I love how 2 verse 4 goes. 2, two verse 4 uses the word toledot. But it's interesting how it's used. It says, these are the generations of heaven and earth. And when they were created. So it uses, this is Toledot of, of earth and heaven. So it talks about the, the things that God begat on the earth, one after another, until we get to Adam. It's the generations of just the earth. And, and the rest are men. So if you look at it, introduction, the generations of the earth, the next Toledot is the generations of Adam, that's five, chapters five through six, eight. Then we go to chapters six, nine through nine, 27. And in six, nine, that's the Toledot of Noah, the generations of Noah. And then 10, one through 11, nine, 10, one speaks about the Toledot of Noah. 
And um, there's kind of a subtolodot in 1032. That's how the generation spread, okay? And then the next toledot is in 11, verse 10 through 26, 26, and that's toledot of Shem. So you see how Shem and his generations progressed. All right. Now we're going to get into the interesting stuff. Yes, Travis. So, Mark, how do we fill in this literary structure outline? You should have six points, right? I have four. We have A, A, and then four points underneath. Oh, did I copy my wrong thing in there? I, I don't. I think I did. Um, so, we should have six? Yes. Okay. We should have six. So, forgive me if I only put four in my example. So it goes introduction is introduction one. is one, and that's Genesis. God created the universe with mankind as the apex. That's chapters one through two, three. Okay. Two is the toledot or generations of heaven and earth. Sin enters and spreads among mankind. That's that toledot. It tells about that. That's two four to what? Two four to four twenty six. Okay. Three, the third toledot is, or excuse me, second toledot. It is. Chapters 5, verse 1 through 6, 8, and that's the Toledot of Adam, which is the corruption of mankind. Sin enters the world, right? 4, that's the Toledot of Noah, and that's chapter 6, verse 9 through 9, 27. That's God's judgment on mankind. If you want to use the word uncreation, he uncreated. And renewal, he recreated the earth, he renewed it. Uh, basically, and then that ends with the Noahic covenant or the rainbow in the sky, right? And then five is the Toledot of the sons of Noah. And this is where God disperses mankind as nations after the rebellion of Babel. And that's chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, verse 9. And then uh, the last one would be number six. That's the Toledot of Shem. And that's chapter 11 through 10 or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 10 through 26. Everybody get that? Okay. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. There is another Toledot in 1032, and that's more about the generations being dispersed. Okay. Uh, three, yeah. was three was five the one through what? five one through six eight. Six eight. Okay. Yep. And four was six nine through nine twenty seven. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, now we get into the fun part, and we've got a half hour, and we are going to have to really accelerate, okay? But I do want to have some conversation. So interpretive challenges, okay? Uh, the first one is the nature of Genesis 1 through 11. What do you believe the nature of that section is, okay? Now, there are those who believe it's a myth, they believe that it's a myth copied from ancient Mesopotamia, and it was shared with Abraham, possibly, an oral tradition, made it down to Moses. You can see where I'm going. No regard for God's involvement, right? No regard for God. So they believe it's a myth, a collection of ancient myths. One of the ones that they, um, they speak about is the Anuma Elish, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, but it basically, it does somewhat, I'll say, it is a creation story. It is from Mesopotamia. It has different sections, but they're different. And 
I'm going to go down real quick. Genesis account. You should have, I'm, I'm hoping I gave you, what did I give you guys there? I should, would somebody mind grabbing me one of my note papers so I can see what you're up against? But one of the, the first interpretive challenges is myth. I would turn your paper over and type or write myth and then make two columns, Genesis and just say myth, or you can actually put the Enuma Elish, which is E-N-U-M-A space E-L-I-S-H. That is a myth that was from ancient Mesopotamia. So if we look at this Genesis account, okay, if, you, if you have on your left-hand side Genesis, Number one, God is seen as the ultimate source of power and he transcends creation. But in this myth that these people believe that uh, Abraham copied somehow, it's a magic incantation and, and all, they're the ultimate source of power. Uh, there's multiple gods and the gods are subject to nature. You know, jive. Next one down, number two. Uh, our Genesis account is organized coverage of creation. It systematically includes general realms of nature, sky, land, sea, right? We see these things, animals, fish, birds, man. I'm not saying them in order. I'm just giving you it's systematic. On their side, it doesn't include creation of vegetation. There's no mention of it. Animals and light, no mention or excuse me, they're just assumed to have already exist. And um, the moon and the stars were created, but the sun wasn't. I don't know how they think this myth went together. Three, the purpose of Genesis was to praise uh, God as Lord of over creation and acknowledge him as, as such. And it was a tribute to God's ultimacy and authority. If you look at this Enuma Elish, it was a, it was a hymn to pray, praise some Marduk as champion of mightiest of the gods, okay? It doesn't jive. Um, four, it begins, uh, Genesis begins before things as we knew them to exist. God created ex nihilo, nothing existed, then God spoke it into existence. In this myth, it begins before heaven and earth were named, but cannot imagine a situation where material did not exist. <laughs> okay, that doesn't jive. Um, and then five, it's our Genesis account starts with primeval deep, okay? And theirs does start with deep, but it's all fresh water or salt water. So it's completely different, guys. So for folks to say that Abraham just borrowed a myth, doesn't jive. It just doesn't jive. Um, symbolic. So what I'm saying here is there's no proof at all that Genesis was a derivative or a copy from an ancient myth. That's my point. Number two, symbolic theology. Now this is called the neo-orthodox influence. It's basically um, what, what started neo-Orthodox uh, uh, is basically archaeological evidence that uh, was being presented with bias. I'm going to just say that. Uh, it led to men trying to reinterpret Genesis. It's also um, a possibility that some men were trying to explain the fall of Satan. 
Okay, and how does that fit into the play of, of Genesis? Because Satan and his demons are just created beings. We believe they were created along with creation when God spoke it into existence. And how can you have the fall of Satan in such a short period of time? Okay, so they, they came up, neo-orthodoxism came out of those things. But basically the, the stories of Genesis, their belief, embody truth symbolically. Uh, theology is buried within the stories. For example, Adam symbolizes the first man and represents all man, although he wasn't a true man in real space in time, but merely a fictional character who stands for the rest of mankind. That's symbolic theology. And you can see that influence in America where folks talk about Genesis, and, oh, it's just analogy and it's symbolic. And if you read about it, it's really not historic, okay? I need you to, I want you to listen to this quote. If, if we buy into myth or symbology, okay? This quote is from uh, a very well-known atheist, Thomas Huxley. And I think a lot of us would like to think, you know, the downfall of America began, uh, started in 1960 when prayer left the schools. I hate to break it to you, it started a lot sooner, okay? A lot earlier. Thomas Huxley was not from 1925, he was from 1825. 1825 to 19, 1895, that was his reign of power, I'll call it. Uh, he has an essay, what he calls, Lights of the Church and Science. And this is his quote, this is from an atheist, this is not a believer, okay? I am fairly at a loss to comprehend how anyone for a moment can doubt that Christian theology must stand or fall with the historical trustworthiness of the Jewish scriptures. The very conception of Messiah or Christ is inextricably interwoven with Jewish history. The identification of Jesus of Nazareth with the Messiah rests upon the interpretation of passages of the Hebrew scriptures, which have not evidential value unless they possess the historical character that is assigned to them. If the covenant with Abraham was not made, if the circumcision and sacrifices were not ordained by Jehovah, if the ten words were not written by God's own hand on stone tablets, if Abraham is more or less a mythical hero, such as Thesis, the story of the deluge, a fiction, that the fall, a legend, and that the creation is but a dream of a seer, if all these definite and detailed narratives of apparently real events have no more value as history than have the stories of regal period of Rome, what is to be said about the messianic doctrine, which is so much less clearly enunciated? And what about the authority of the writers of the books of the New Testament, whom on this theory have not merely accepted flimsy fiction for solid truths, but have built the very foundation of Christian dogma upon legendary quicksand. Man, we have an atheist get up in our own face when we deny the historicity of Genesis. When we don't see Abraham as a real man in real time, in real space, it destroys 
the testimony of the New Testament. And it's interesting that an atheist saw that back in 1825, because he already saw what America was doing to the story and the stories in the Bible. They were pushing them off as myth and symbology. That is not what they are. Um, so let's jump back into it. Got to see where you guys are at. So we are at the interpretive challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Myth, symbology, historical narrative. That's the third one. Um, this is this is uh, not literary. Um, there is not a literary distinction between chapter one through eleven twenty six, as there is through chapter eleven twenty seven through fifty twenty six to the end of Genesis. It's all the same. The literary stories are the same. They use the word Toledot of Abraham, Toledot of Isaac, Toledot of Jacob, okay? We see that word, it's used throughout Genesis. So if the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are believable, because those don't get contradicted as much, the story of, a of Adam and Noah, there is real. Mm -hmm. There are discernible historical features in chapters 1 through 11, we have 64 geographical terms that we can place on maps, terms, 88 personal names, 48 generic names, 21 cultural items. It talks about wood, metal buildings, or excuse me, <laughs> woods, metals, buildings, Metal buildings would be interesting. Musical instruments. It talks about men who made instruments. Okay? The New Testament assumes and thereby, thereby confirms the historicity of Genesis. If you look, the writers of the New Testament believed in an in, in Adam, a real Adam. Luke 3.38. Romans 5.14. 1 Corinthians 15.22. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, 1 Timothy 2, 13, and 14, and Jude 14, all assume and know there was a real Adam. Noah, affirmed by the New Testament, Matthew 24, 37, and 38, Luke 3, 36, uh, Luke 17, 26, and 27, Hebrews 11, 7, 1 Peter 3, 20, and 2 Peter 2, 5. Another interpretation challenge can be understanding Genesis 1 through 5. This is where it, it and I want to I hurry this along, but some things that came in on understanding Genesis 1 through 5, one of them was the gap theory. And the gap theory was actually invented by Christian brothers well-intentioned. They, they came up with the gap theory, and the gap theory is Genesis 1 talks about God creating heavens and the earth. And then there's this gap. This is their theory. There's this gap of time. And then he talks about creating the earth again. Literary, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit grammatically. And it's a stretch to make the Hebrew words. I'm not going to go into detail on it. But um, like I said, this theory was originally came about to find a place for the fall of Satan and his demons. The problem here is that it is not grammatically likely 
to translate the word hayen or hayen as became rather than was. In other words, we believe it existed and God created it. And then the, the uh, morning and evening is a detail of how he created those items. In the gap theory, they're trying to say, no, he created the heavens and the earth and then it lasted for a while and then he recreated it. That did not happen, okay? There's also the recreation theory. Now this theory was by Merrill Unger and Bruce Waltke. Uh, they propound this view saying that uh, bara does not necessarily mean creation from nothing or ex nihilo. They say that it emphasize, um, they say the emphasis of bara is that God is always the subject and therefore the verb is used to emphasize that God is doing a work that no one else can do. That means they believe that God was recreating what was formerly in chaos. Now these guys came up with this theory, this recreation theory, because archeological evidence was coming to them saying that, well, there's all this dinosaur strata and God doesn't talk about dinosaurs. So you gotta come up with something here that makes this work. So that's what these guys did. They submitted to the authority of man instead of the authority of the scripture, okay? And what we need to remember when evidences are being brought forward from the scientific community, they are being brought forward with their bias. They're being brought forward with their view of the world. They have their rosy colored glasses on and we have our Christian colored glasses on. And honestly, they're bringing evidence forward that's not always accurate. Um, it wasn't very many years ago, I was trying to teach my son how to be a little more um, critical of what he watches on TV, especially the Science Channel. And I warned him, hey, we're gonna watch the Science Channel, they got a great show on tonight, and I want you to tell me if you see any mistakes. And they were down in Mexico and they were doing a dig, and they were looking for this one type of velociraptor, and they knew that if they went back in time, this four-foot velociraptor, they ought to see a smaller, you know, less formed, get deeper in the strata, and you're gonna find a velociraptor that's not quite as uh, intricate and, and as advanced, okay? More like a chicken, or if, you know, more smaller and less advanced. Not as tough, right? Because this bigger velociraptor was really bad. It was mean, right? Well, they were doing their dig, and they found way down in the strata a more advanced velociraptor. And the guy goes, we know we can ignore this evidence because it doesn't fit ge geographic uh, geological time. And my son looks at me and goes, did he actually say they're not going to submit evidence that they found? Yes. <laughs> and yes, I created a skeptic. It was wonderful. So um, <laughs> my point to you is the fact that when evidence is being brought forward as fact, they may not be. We need to look at that archeological evidence for ourselves. I, I love the fact that we have men who are Christian men that are creation scientists that are looking at things to really look at that, to see if it, if it fits, how does this work in? Much better. It's, it's a joy to see that happening now where years ago we were at the mercy. I, I think it's sad, I'll share a story when I was in high school and that was many moons ago. Um, we had a student teacher who was teaching our social studies and he was teaching on basically uh, evolution. And 
every time he would say, well, we know from evolution that, and my buddy and I, both being believers, would say, no, in theory. And at the end of the class, by the end time he was done, he ended up saying, in theory, this is what scientists are bringing forward. You don't get that today. It's being taught as fact. There's no theory. And guys, they have a faith-based religion. Their faith-based religion is naturalism. We were not there at creation. They were not there at creation. They are looking at the evidence just like we're looking at the evidence. We are looking at it in light of scripture. They are looking at it in light of their bias that there is no God and there is no supernatural action. Okay? So that's going to be opposed. I'm going to go back to this. They are a faith-based religion with the doctrine of evolution leading them. And unfortunately, the separation of church and state in this country, we have combined with that faith-based religion with our state. It's sad. You know, we were out in Washington, D.C. last year, and one side of the mall is humanism, and the other side of the mall is naturalism. It was very uncomfortable. And I thought, wow, how many of our founding fathers would want to see what we've done with this nation and something that's really supposed to be to show folks the freedom we have in the United States. Mm. Kind of sad, folks. Really sad. So I want you to remember, when you're hearing different evidence presented as fact, they are being brought as a faith-based religion from their bias. No different than we are. We have a faith-based religion, too. and We have our bias built on the Word of God, which is a trustworthy standard. Okay. So um, I'm going to uh, go into... Meaning of day, that is another um, interpretive challenge. Meaning of day, uh, is it a 24-hour day? We see the use of evening and morning. It's accompanied by numerical adjectives, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the reason that the scripture uses in Exodus 2.11 why we keep the Sabbath day holy or why Israel should have kept the Sabbath day holy, right? We are free because of the cross. The original hearers, what did the original hearers hear and understand? The word yom, what did it mean to them? As they listened to Moses proclaim the law to them on the plains of Moab, these people would have heard it as one day. I always ask, why did God have to take 24 hours? Why didn't he take two seconds? Mm -hmm. You know, I, God is ultimate power. You know, he took a day to show that he did things with care and that actually he did that for the Sabbath to set up that seventh day Sabbath that we should rest in him, acknowledge him, take time back to to acknowledge the Lord. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit real quick. Okay. Intermittent day theory. This is a theory that came in basically saying, okay, it was 24-hour days God created, but it was a million years between the days. So he, he made the, the light, right, light and dark, and then he waited a couple billion years, and okay, then we got, we got some sky and, and sea going on, right? Yeah, come on, guys. It, it takes away from the power of God. Um, this one's a real getter. I, I didn't even know this one. Revelatory day theory. 
and I'll read this slow because you, you got to hear this. God revealed his creative work to Moses or somebody in a, <laughs> or, somebody? or somebody, this is their theory, in a series of visions over a six day period. So the guy fell asleep that night and had visions and it was evening and it was morning and he woke up and went, God had light. Well, it took you all night to get that one, huh? No shame. And then the next day, right? He slept again or whatever. It was evening. It was morning. He got up and I got to write this down. God made the, the uh, expanse separate from the expanse. It's amazing, right? That's revelatory day. It doesn't fit grammatically, folks. It doesn't. And it talks about the fact that God created, you know? All right. So, uh, Literary framework theory. This is another theory. This is a popular view today among evangelicals who want to compromise with modern scientific theory. I'll say it again. Authority of science over authority of the word. We pick the authority of the word, okay? Uh, the creation account is a literal framework to communicate a theological message. And the theological message they believe that is being presented is God formed it and then God filled it. That's what you're supposed to walk away with. Thank you very much. We're done. That doesn't make sense. Okay. Uh, yes, we agree with that fame framework. We do believe that God formed the earth and we see God beginning to fill the earth. We see that. So in a sense, it's a theory that's based on fact that God did form the earth and fill the earth, but that's not all God wanted us to learn. Much more. Okay. All right. What is the image of God? This is another thing that we need to look at. Uh, it's the immaterial nature of humanity. Uh, these are the communicable attributes of God. We see them in ourselves. You know, the good things when you, you have integrity. Okay. God is a God of integrity, holiness, righteousness, justice. These are things that were passed on to us. Are we perfect at those? No. But that is that immaterial nature of humanity where we are an image of God. The rule of humanity over the earth. Uh, this world um, would be representative and not reflective of God. Actually, both things are true. Mankind represents God in as much as we reflect God, even in a fallen state, Man still reflects something of God, Genesis 9, 6. All right, this is another one. Uh, though hardly work, uh, worth mentioning, uh, there are some heretics or cultists who think that the image of God refers to both immaterial and material. And you're going, well, where are we going with this? Uh, for example, Mormons believe God is simply an elevated man with a physical body. And man is God in embryo form, which means you're a God even when the egg and, you know, okay, no. Hate to break it to you. Rule number one, there is a God. Rule number two, you're not him. Rule number three, see rule number one. Okay? Identity of the sons of God. Oh boy, we got eight minutes to get her done. All right. Identity of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. Go there in your Bibles, please. Okay? 
You should have five or four points here, Leave. Five? None? Turn your page over, okay? All right, so number one, sons of God, are they interpreted as angels? Are these angels taking human form? Okay. You could look at 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6. Number two, are they godly sons of Seth? Some have argued that they are the sons of Seth. Let's, we're going to work this through. Number three, dynastic rulers. Are they kings prior to the flood or royal heroes? Men who had first rights with women before they were passed on to their husband on their wedding night. That is a theory. Four, uh, royal heroes, again. Um, honestly, this was the tough one, especially when Travis says, oh, come next week prepared to stomp Noah. And he was saying, on the sons of God. But um, I think we have to approach this scripture with humility and allow for some freedom here with each other. Uh, I love the videos that we were recommended to uh, listen to from Professor Essex um, at TMS. Uh, Professor Essex would believe these are angelic in nature. And that's how he word worded it, angelic in nature. And his counterpart, his other professor, believes these are, are sons of Seth. Now, we need to step back and do good hermeneutics here, right? So what do we have to remember? Who wrote it, when they wrote it, where they wrote it, who were they writing to, what was known by the people they were writing it to, what words were known, right? Okay, and this is where it can get a little scratchy, I'll say, okay? So if we wanna go with godly sons of Seth, what are some of the problems that we see in that interpretation? Why would that create well, it's a possible if you, and, and Brett, that's Brett's question was, why would these things create gigantic offspring or the Nephilim, right? If you look grammatically, most theologians do not believe the Nephilim and these offspring go together because it just pretty much says Nephilim was on the earth at that time. And then if you look at when Joshua and Caleb and then the 10 spies were sent, they saw Nephilim. So Nephilim were on the earth after the flood. No angelic tie. So grammatically, Brett, it appears that Nephilim would be just a subcategory of that. Not that they were from that angelic relationship. But what was? Mighty men of old, right? These were mighty men of old. Renowned. Men of renown. Men of name. Okay, that's what it means. Men who had a name. So it, it's hard to reconcile that Seth's kids saw Cain's kids and came together and had children. But that is an interpretation that has validity. It does. It could be that. You know, one of the arguments I heard was, well, the, the people um, that heard this wouldn't know what sons of God mean. Well, I would differ, okay? And the reason why I say this, I have been conflicted on this, I will admit trying to interpret this. It is a landmine, okay? And you have to remember what culture these people came out of. These people came out of Egypt. It was Pharaoh culture. 
Pharaohs believed they were the son of God. They believed they were sons of God or gods. And they believed that they inherited the throne because of that. So the people would have thought sons of God could be dynastic or kings or pharaohs. All right. We also see later on through the Torah, and we see this in Job, sons of God mean angels. Okay. Now, the, the uh, problem we have with interpreting it as angels is those who argue that, say, Jesus, when confronted by the Jews to trip him up, the lawyer, right, <laughs> says we had seven men. First one married the lady and his brother, he died, so his brother had to have offspring with her to fulfill the need of, you know, the right? So he marries her, and then he dies, and then the next brother marries her, and he dies, and so on, so on, till the seventh uh, man, right? And Christ looks at him and goes, do you not read the scripture? Right? She will not be given in marriage like the angels are. The angels are not given in marriage. Mm -hmm. Now, the argument in this is the fact that the woman is post-resurrection rapture. She's not pre-resurrection rapture like the women in Genesis are. The women in Genesis are pre-resurrection women. So they are given in marriage. Not to angels. Okay? But they are given in marriage to have children. But not ladies in heaven. Our Mormon friends would like to say that women will be eternally pregnant in heaven. That's what they believe. Wow. No. No. Because that doesn't match what Christ said. Right? And marriage is for the procreation of mankind. It's to have children. So for Jesus to say they're not given in marriage, that's basically meaning they're not there to have children in heaven. Okay? So... That is a problem when you have Genesis women who are, this woman who's not. So in this part, they don't agree, right? They don't come together. Um, Professor Essex took the view, and I, and I do, I'm bending this way, okay, that angelic in nature could mean the fallen demons or those sons of God kicked out of heaven and dwelt man. Because we know that man became demon-possessed. We see that in the New Testament. And these demon-possessed men who were being ruled by demons took on women, took women, and had children with them. In some ways, it does make sense to me. As I've studied it, I look and I go, hmm, the demon-possessed men in the, uh, man in the cemetery possessed unbelievable strength. He broke chains. Nobody could tie him down. Nobody could withstand him. He was crazy. Thank God Jesus Christ came along and freed that man and freed that community. Can you imagine how scary that must have been? And you think, is that a possibility, angelic in nature, that these were offspring from a demon-possessed man and a son of Seth and that child was raised in that atmosphere, wow, who knows what they were. They could have been man of renown, right? So it is a possibility. I, I, I lean towards that one. It just makes sense to me. I'm not telling you dogmatically that's what you need to believe. I'm just saying when you look at these different things, have in your mind, dynastic ruler, yes, because pharaohs thought they were the son of God, this, this belief that they had first right to women, 
that was a European influence from uh, Germania, France, and England, because they would do that back then. The kings would take the newlyweds, right? That was not something that's documented at all in the Egyptian or Mesopotamian areas. Not at all. They can't find that. So that one's a little hard to reconcile. Godly sons of Seth, it has its problems to reconcile. Angel angels, actual physical angels, having children with actual physical women. I love what Debbie said before the, the study, and, and we've had this study before. God made us after our kind, right? Well, angels aren't our kind. What I love about this, though, it being in Scripture, angelic in nature. Let's, let's go there for a second. Last week, Travis gave us a good hint on how to really study Scripture for yourself. What do you lose by removing that story from the Scripture? What do you lose by removing that story from the Scripture? That's been on my heart for a week. Okay, and here's where I went. If I take the corruption story, and I mean not the violence part, man turning violence. I'm talking the corruption. The corruption part is 6-8 where sons of God intermingled somehow with sons of man, right? If I remove that and I remember the pluralisms or plural Elohim or God in plural being used in Genesis 1 and 2, people have conjectured that angels were involved in the creation. I think this is a good place to put the fact these are angels and they're no different than you. They are no better than you. They are created beings and they had no place in the creation. That's what I got from saying, if I remove this, I kind of lose that, that angels were not part of the creation. They're, they're subject to fall. They fell. A third of them fell. We don't understand that fully, but somehow in a perfect environment, Satan and his minions, a third of them fell from heaven. And uh, I, I just look at this and I go, I think I would lose that if I didn't have there to give me real perspective on what an angel is. It's a created being, okay? Not going to be dogmatic on that, okay? The extent of the flood. I'm going to just try to wrap this up in about two minutes. If parents, you need to leave and grab your children from Moana, please do. Um, the extent of the flood. Was it localized? You know, the, the, the localized theory only came about because archaeologists tried to say there was no flood evidence in Mesopotamia. But that's, that's because of their bias, there's others who view things and go, no, there's flood evidence there. You're just not seeing it. Um, there's actually a flood layer. Uh, Ken Ham will call it that, a mud layer that actually is around the entire earth. Uh, what I really loved is watching, um, well, that's a sub note, but basically I was watching a show and it said, we don't understand this. This was an atheistic geologist. He said, we don't understand this. At this point in the strata, all of a sudden life just broke forth. It was everywhere. Like, yeah, preach it, brother. All right, so um, the extent of the flood. I believe that the scripture teaches it was worldwide. If you look at it, 613, uh, 17, chapter 7, 21 through 23, death of every creature. 
Not just some, all. Um, the need for a boat that big. I mean, this was a huge ship. If it was localized, why would they need that? So you look at that the, in chapter 6, 14 through 16, 19 through 29, the depth of the water. It covered the highest mountain, okay? It covered the highest mountain in that area, even if it's just Ararat, okay? 17, 17,000 feet deep. I think that's going to cover the world, okay? Um, but it said it was over the highest mountain. And if that was the Himalayas with Mount Everest, which I'm not sure if that's really did, did exist then, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that why, and I'll give you that in a minute. But if it covered Mount Everest, it definitely covered everything. And it says it did in chapter 7, 17 through 20. The duration of the flood. This is 40 days, 40 nights, a year long. Come on. It's going to flood everything. Um, I, I listened to, uh, this was way back when Chuck Colson had a show on. It was really awesome. And basically, the, the Christian scientists who were looking at uh, the flood, they were looking at the fact that the earth basically broke forth and water came out of the ground, it said. And, and uh, Chuck Colson started looking at the mid-Atlantic rift. And most geologists believe that the, the earth was all put together one piece. I mean, you look at the puzzle of Africa fitting into South America and, and North America. And you know what, guys? That makes sense to me. And geologists started looking at it saying, well, if the earth's crust or the earth was all together at one point, and God cracked that right, while it was sitting on top of water, they, they hypothesized that the water would shoot 65 miles into the air, and that it would <laughs> shoot 65 miles an hour and create fissures all over the continents and shoot water into the air. And that's, it, it very much describes what happened in, in Noah's time. And rain would begin to start uh, most um, scientists believe that the Earth's canopy was 10 times greater than what it is today because they see that really around the Earth at, at a certain strata, all the plant life was pretty much the same. It was very jungle-like, big plants. And uh, they believe that that probably created the collapse of this canopy. And actually, um, that canopy could have been what was protecting Adam and our early ancestors to have lifespans of 930 years like Adam did. Mm -hmm. And post the flood, whew, it drops right off. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, I think I'll save this for Sunday. This was something I was going to share, but I'm teaching Sunday morning. Hopefully tonight won't scare many of you away. Uh, there's one more uh, landmine we were going to look at, and that was the Curse of Cain, but we are out of time. But if you want to talk about it, I'm more than willing to. Uh, it's interesting as well. Um, but I appreciate you letting me run you through chapters 1 through 11 with the accelerator uh, pushed down. But hopefully this gives you an overview of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Let, let me dis dismiss this in prayer, and then you guys can uh, head out. God, we just thank you for tonight. God, I just pray that... Uh, um, God, that your word was exalted, and Lord, through my clumsiness, Lord, that uh, you would still be exalted. And Lord, we just pray for clarity that uh, folks would wrestle these scriptures together, and uh, Lord, that they would do some digging and do some uh, mining out of gold for themselves, Lord. 
and that they would grab out a, a good Bible commentary and really start digging in and reading your scripture in light of what the rest of scripture says. Lord, let scripture interpret scripture. And God, we praise you for the fact that you created this world from nothing. Uh, we praise you for the fact that Adam was a real man in real time and that he was the uh, first Adam and Christ was the second Adam. Through, uh, through our founding father, I'll call him Adam, sin entered the world and we were cursed, Lord. But through Jesus Christ, we're saved. And God, we praise you for that, the, the Adam who is perfect, Jesus Christ. And God, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for the testimony of your scripture. And we thank you uh, in all that you're doing here at Grace. And uh, we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.